This podcast was brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on Sirius XM. Welcome to our Behind the Markets podcast. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz. Alongside Wharton Finance Professor Jeremy Siegel, we tackle the latest market trends every week on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School, Sirius XM, Channel 132. Our guest consists of experts like the world's leading authority on long-term economic growth, Bob Gordon. We will continue to see jobs created rather than destroyed. Former chair of the Federal Reserve, Janet Yellen. I mean, I don't think either of us ever expected that we would live through a financial crisis. Or even the head of the Digital Indian Foundation, Arvind Gupta. The reason that people are talking about India is massive digitization and financial inclusion that we have done over the last couple of years. Enjoy this week's show. Welcome to Behind the Markets here on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz, Global Head of Research at Wisdom Tree and ETF Sponsor. Joining me in our studio, broadcasting from New York, Phil Huber, who is the Chief Investment Officer for Huber Financial Advisors. He's responsible for overseeing all investment portfolio management functions. Just please note, I'm registered representative for Side Fund Services. Our discussion is not tied to the offer of investment products and the views of our guests of their own, not those of Wisdom Tree's affiliates. So Phil, from High Heat Major League Baseball <laughs> Network with Chris Russo, but I'm Jeremy Schwartz. Phil, again. Yeah. Thanks for having me. Um, it's Pleasure not- to be here. Talk about Huber Financial Advisors and what it is your firm, how, how your firm got started. Sure. Yeah. So um, Huber Financial was started by my dad, uh, Dave Huber, uh, in 1988. So we just celebrated our 30th anniversary as a company. Back in, uh, It was on Halloween, actually, this year. Uh, so that was a fun uh, milestone to celebrate. Uh, and yeah, so my, my dad got his start on the insurance side of the business. Uh, and then for him, I think over time, it just became, started doing financial planning work uh, in addition to the insurance work he was doing for clients. And then ultimately that became the, the central part of his business and then investment management, all those things along the way. Um, went independent pretty early in his career uh, to the RAA side of the business. And, um, you know, for a, while, for a while, it was a very much a solo practitioner type of business, a couple of support people. Uh, ultimately, as any you know advisor that started uh, their own firm can tell you, you start to accumulate enough clients. You, at some point, you've got to bring on a, a second advisor to, to help support you. And so uh, I believe it was 2001 uh, when he brought on Rob Morrison, uh, who you've met before. And uh, Rob is now the president of the company, uh, has been with us for over 15 years now. Uh, I joined the firm uh, a little over 10 years ago. Uh, and it's been great. I, I started, uh, so this was 2008, which was a very interesting year to, to yeah. enter this industry, uh, to say the least. But uh, at the time, we were you know, maybe just shy of $300 million under management. Um, I think about, I think it was the eighth employee. And so kind of fast forwarding to today, we've now got two office locations, uh, 25 employees, and a little bit under a billion and a half under management. So it's been an absolute you know, wonderful ride to be a part of uh, for the last 10 years for me personally. Uh, and yeah, just a great uh, organization to be a part of. Would you say you have your clients have a, a particular profiles or anything? You're based in Chicago, um, mm-hmm. suburbs of Chicago. Uh, anything that has in common across client types? You know, so geographically, we just store two office locations, one in the suburbs of Chicago, the other uh, downtown Chicago. Uh, obviously, we have a, a geographical bent to the Chicago you know, land area. Uh, but that being said, we, we've got clients in probably at least you know, 15, 20 states. 
Um, some of that's just people that used to be in Chicago and have since retired and maybe moved to Arizona, Florida, California. Uh, but we have clients all over, all over the place. Um, no one specific, you know, niche or, or, or type of client, but definitely a, a good handful of, of doctors, uh, small business owners, executives. Uh, you know, we tend to, to deal with, you know, high net worth clients that are, are want to be stewards of their families uh, and, and responsibly grow their wealth and protect their wealth and uh, are very busy uh, with their own careers and uh, are really looking for a trusted partner to, to take that on for them. So was there a particular element that you would say who sets Huber apart from another advisor community? Like why would – what's this in, in 30 seconds, you know, the why Huber is the, is the place to be? Well, I mean, you know, we obviously we're – we, I feel we're a very competent firm and, and we have a lot of great talent and expertise, uh, a great approach to financial planning and investment management. Uh, but there's also a lot of other firms that have those very same qualities. I think to me what sets us apart is – and this is sort of an internal, you know, motto or kind of mantra that we have is that we're a family serving families. That's what we do. I mean, we have a very, very small amount of institutional business we do, but at the end of the day we're trying to – uh, be a wealth manager for for uh, other families, and then the family aspect for us is that's our culture. We, you know, that's one thing we've always taken a great deal of pride in, and that we've always tried to really manage as we've grown. And that can be a difficult thing to do, especially when you've got you know a lot of new faces at the firm uh, from hiring, and you've got multiple locations. But it's very top of mind uh, for us to want to maintain that family like culture internally too. And I think our clients appreciate that. And and uh, as a son working with his father in his father's business, I assure family has a great element and also I'm sure has its own set of challenges and unique elements mm-hmm. of managing your own career and aspirations and how you think about joining his business. You know, maybe sort of talk about your personal career tra- trajectory, how you got to Huber before you got to Huber. Yeah, so um, I spent, I mean, I majored in finance in college. I knew I was going into some aspect of the finance industry. And I think just growing up, up around this business, I, I thought it was a great business and something longer term I saw, I definitely saw myself being a part of. But there's also that element when you're in school and you're, you're you know, graduating, you don't, you want, you want to maybe spread your wings a little bit. And so uh, my first uh, job was at a mutual fund company in an inside wholesaling role. Uh, and that was, so that we started uh, summer of 2007, uh, and it didn't last very long. Right into the crisis. Yeah, right into the crisis. So mid 2008, uh, you know, the company wasn't, uh, and most firms weren't really doing that well. Uh, and so they, they decided to let uh, a number of us go. And so, you know, I was in a position where, um, you know, I started to try to interview elsewhere and wasn't finding anything at the time. And, um, you know, my dad had always said, you know, the doors open, uh, if you want an opportunity here, we'd love to just, you know, see if it works. And, you know, I was like, you know what? There's no no time like the present. Let's just let's give it a shot. If it doesn't work out, fine. I'll go find something else to do. If it does, like great. This this will be my my long term home. Unfortunately, you know, having been here a little over ten years now, it, it's uh, this is where you know I, I'm gonna you know be for my my full career. This is this is my home. That's awesome. Talk, talk a little bit about the stories from being an internal wholesaler during the crisis and then maybe how that now that internal wholesalers are calling you, like mm-hmm. how that perspective changes your perspective as as what you learned on the desk and now receiving the calls. How's that change your, your view of the yeah, people it's making fun, the Yeah, funny calls? how the tables turn a little bit like that, but uh, I, I, I realized really quickly with that job because, you know, if you're an internal wholesaler, ultimately you're doing that to try to, you know, cut your teeth for a few years and then get moved outside and be an external wholesaler. I realized like day one, like I hate calling people all day. So it's like, why am I in a job where I'm literally just cold calling 
advisors at you know Merrill Lynch and Morgan Stanley and UBS, uh, and it's just an exercise in rejection. <laughs> and and half the time you're really just trying to call and schedule time with your external to go meet with them. And I just wasn't getting any satisfaction of the job. I loved the people there, and it was a very fun environment for someone who's you know fresh out of college. You're, you're with a lot of other kind of twenty something year olds, and it, it was a blast. And I, I I really valued the experience, but I just knew you know from the get go that it wasn't going to be where I wanted to, you know, uh, build my career. Um, and so I began studying for the CFA process while I was still there, knowing that I wanted to kind of shift uh, to something a little more analytical. I think that's just kind of, you know, I'm better, you know, with that sort of stuff than, than, than calling on people all day. Yeah. And so talking about sort of generational, sort of the family serving families, um, you're sort of taking, spreading the, the Huber financial advisor wisdom across the world in a sort of more modern, you could say younger generation formats. You've got, you know, one of the more uh, you know, nicely followed blogs, Bips and Pieces. Um, how do you talk about how you got onto to writing and how, how you're spreading, spreading your... Yeah, I mean, it's it's funny. Like if you had asked me in high school or college or told me that, you know, fast forward 10, 15 years from now, like you're going to be a big component of your day-to-day is going to be, you know, writing stuff. I was never like something I prided myself in being good at. It wasn't something I particularly was, you know, interested in doing. But I think just it's one of those things that over time, and I think it comes from reading other people. So I, I definitely attribute my sort of inspiration for wanting to launch my own blog uh, from people like Josh Brown and Ben Carlson. And I just what they were saying resonated with me a ton. And, you know, eventually it was just like, you know, what, I, I, I kind of want to throw my hat in the ring and see if I can do this, too, because, you know, from from the blog world, but then also like uh, there's all this large, as you well know, this big finance Twitter community. Um, and I was like, I want to be a part of that. Like, I'm, I'm having a lot of fun, like following and, you know, observing what all these yeah. people are saying. But like, I want to be a part of the conversation. And I think the best way to do that is to kind of put your name out there. Let, let me reintroduce our guests. We're talking with Phil Huber, the chief investment officer for Huber Financial Advisors, one of the members of FinTwit, as we call it. And you're, <laughs> we're here in the New York studios here in the high heat Major League Baseball Network in SiriusXM's New York headquarters. Um, and sort of talking about one of the firms right down the street, Ritholtz, uh, you know, sort of mentioning Josh and Ben and their FinTwit community. I mean, obviously they're sort of leaders in that. How did yeah. you get into FinTwit? Like, how, what was you know, your experience? I, so what I strategically did, I think, with my, my first blog post, because I was like, well, I'm a nobody. How, the, how am I going to get people to follow me or read me? And so there were many that were really kind enough to uh, – I had this idea for a first post, and it was basically asking a bunch of other people – Who's on your Mount Rushmore of investors? You know, the four people that have most kind of inspired how you think about markets, investing. And so, you know, people like Bob Seawright and Michael Batnick and, you know, probably a dozen others I, you know, haven't mentioned. I just reached out to them and said, hey, would you be willing to, uh, you know, provide a response to this question and, and you know, for, for this per- first post that I'm doing? And, you know, they were, you know, as kind as can be and, and sent some really thoughtful responses and uh, them having their own audiences already kind of built in and them sharing it, I think, was did a great deal of help for me in terms of at least getting the blog uh, known. Um, and then from there, and then once you've got a bit of an audience, it just kind of can snowball from there. And what about Twitter? You were telling me a story about when you first joined Twitter yeah, and so how that happened. I think like a lot of people, I, I think it was maybe 2009, I probably opened my Twitter account and never used it for like five years. I just never got it. Like all the, everything else, like, you know, use Facebook, use Instagram. Like Twitter was just kind of this like thing. I just like, how do people use this? What's the purpose of it? And then... 
uh, so 2015, early 2015, I suffered from a detached retina in my right eye. Uh, and so I had immediate surgery on it. Uh, fortunately, everything got you know fixed and I'm in good shape now. But uh, part of the recovery process was that you need to be uh, essentially to, to get it to stay in place when they reattach it is you've got to be in a face down position for about 18, you know, 16 to 18 hours a day for three weeks. So I had to take wow. off work for three weeks. I had to rent this specialized like equipment, this kind of chair where it's like almost like one of those like almost little massage chairs that you kind of lean in and there's like a little donut for your face and you're just like in this head down position all massages day. Massages all day long does not sound like a bad program. Except, but... there, except there weren't any <laughs> massages. And so it was, I, you know, I was basically like alone in my apartment yeah. for, you know, three weeks, you know, grew a full beard, went like full, like, you know, Tom Hanks and cast away, but only Twitter to save you. So it's like one of those things where there's only so much you can do and I've got the patch over my one eye. And so it's like, what, what else am I going to do? But like scroll my phone. And so it, you know, was, I just kind of got on there and started going through, and then I was just like, "Oh, wow, this is actually really cool." There's a lot more going on here than I would have anticipated. Like all these other bloggers that I read are pretty active on here, and and so it went from this thing that I never even used before to now it's like almost an ex- you know I feel like for a lot of you know people in our community feel like this. It's like an extension of you to a degree. It's a great way to network, and I've built a lot of great relationships both locally in Chicago and across the country with other you know people in the industry and it's just been tremendous from that aspect i really enjoyed it i mean i have a i don't have as harrowing of a story of of getting on but probably (laughs) that was the silver lining of that i guess (laughs) um i mean i probably started in the same same way as you where you have an account you start following people just for reading it's like a new source Mm -hmm. of how you're sort of taking in information and then you see all these conversations happening you're saying well can i participate um, and actually, this serious show is how I got able to start doing it because I sort of had this outside business activity that was able to allow me mm-hmm. to start doing something online. And now it's more official part of my internal business activities. But it was, uh, you know, it's a, it's, it is a great community to be part of. Now, how do you think about that for other advisors listening in? Like, how do you think about that as a client referencing source do you think your clients are on twitter or is it more about our community this fintwit community that you're networking with and building new relationships and making you a better advisor and sort of honing your own sort of skills messages wisdom more Mm -hmm. versus client sure yeah i think some of our clients are on twitter but very if i had to guess a percentage it's you know probably single digits and so for me, like to, the, getting the message out of our opinions and thoughts and things to, to clients, it's the blog is the, the medium for that. Twitter is more from a, you know, developing as a professional standpoint, you know, learning from people, sharing that, that to me is the big benefit. Um, and I think just, you know, getting exposure, you know, to other areas, whether it be conferences or, you know, quoted in articles or like, you know, I did an appearance on that or for friend Eric Belkunis' show on Bloomberg. Like, to me, those are all cool opportunities that have arisen from from kind of, uh, you know, getting to know and network some other other people on Twitter. Where we talk about conferences, one of the, as, as our friend, our other finance Twitter friend, uh, Wes, likes to say and, and sort of fellow co-host of Behind the Markets occasionally. Yeah. Um, the weirdest conference is the March for the Fallen that we went to <laughs> earlier this year. About a hundred of us joined Wes marching for sort of fallen Pennsylvania soldiers. Talk about your experience uh, on the march. I, I, it was amazing. I mean, what an incredible weekend. I give uh, Wes all the credit in the world for really corralling and, and getting everybody from FinTwit to get on board for this. You know, for me, it was something like I've never done anything like that before. 
Uh, so it was, the, you know, definitely a summer full of training. Um, and I definitely wasn't prepared for all the elevation changes. Uh, you know, all my training hikes were in the suburbs of Chicago, which is as flat as it gets. Uh, but it was such a cool experience, obviously very physically challenging, but just that entire weekend of, and, and just the cause in general, knowing why you're marching, uh, you know, it just was a, a really valuable experience. And, and certainly I, I'm op- definitely open to doing it again at some point. So just for the people uninitiated, 28 miles, um, a lot of the people wear 35 pound packs to sort and, of represent what the, the sort of soldiers do. Unless you're a psychopath like Corey Hofstein and decide to do 50 pounds. <laughs> yes, I decided I am not doing the pack. Now, Phil and I were just talking last night. Would you do it again with the pack, without the pack? And he and I have different takes on this. So, <laughs> Phil, tell us if you're going to do it again, pack or no pack? Ha- having gone and done it and gotten through, okay, I, if I'm doing it again, I'm doing it full pack. I want to you know, continue to challenge myself, and I, I think I would go full pack uh, next time. Now, this is the difference between somebody with kids and somebody without kids. So, <laughs> Phil, not kids yet. He's got the five hours he can spend every day on the weekend. <laughs> Two young daughters, myself. I don't have political capital to spend six hours marching and training with a pack. <laughs> so I am in the no pack zone and I am in the, I'll do it again every year, but the pack is seems like a challenge maybe one day, but mm. um, I am not taking that political fight. But so for people who are, you know, want to join this finance, well, well, I think the, I think group, the MVP uh, of the entire race was your wife. Bonnie, because she, what was it, a week beforehand she knew she was going to do it? Yep. So, so the, didn't no training at all and uh, made it through, right? W- yeah, she knew I was preparing a little bit. I mean, she knew I did it the year before. I thought I was crazy. There's no way you could do anything like that. And, you know, she happens to be, you know, she's regular into fitness. She does a lot of yoga as one of her general routines. So she's in shape, mm-hmm. but she had not done any preparation besides her, you know, few times a week regular yoga class. It shows you the benefits of now. This is not like just sitting and stretching. This is like, you know, decently intense yoga, um, power yoga or, you know, vinyasa and and, and pretty intense. But having the flexibility, I mean, and there was a lot of our FinTwick community who trained heavily who were then struggling. But she just coasted and she thought she would turn back, but she just made it. (laughs) Now, it took us 10 hours, but we made it. We crossed the finish line. Well, it's good to have like people around you just to kind of keep yourself sane as you're going through it and have good conversations. So, yeah, all around great experience. So for the challenge, for the people who think you see all these people training five hours a weekend, you don't have to. You could make it if you just stay in good shape. Uh, (laughs) That's the core lesson of that. Um, But sort of if we if we sort of uh step back we talk a lot about your experience online and sort of what what huber is doing um maybe talk a little bit more about the principles that you take you sort of talked about being a family working for families Mm -hmm. um maybe go a little bit more into some of the principles that guide the firm's thinking in terms of how you work with families sure so you know my role being more on the investment side uh and and we spent a lot of time earlier this year putting together uh, a new piece that we think conveys our, our overall firm investment philosophy and how we build portfolios for clients. And so, you know, we came up with a list of uh, 14 principles. Some might think that's a bit, you know, too many, but I, I think it really, you know, encompasses, you know, how we think about things. And, and we kind of view these as timeless, regardless of what kind of market we're in, what, you know, products and tools are available to us. You know, I think as long as we stay true, you know, we can evolve our thinking over time, but I think adhering and staying true to these you know, core principles is is a very important thing to do. 
So 14 principles. Maybe we'll walk through. Yeah, we don't, we don't, I don't want to bore your uh, listeners with all 14, but... Um, we'll go through some of them. Let's see you know, how much we can get through in terms of just getting the thinking of, of, of Huber. And uh, just to reintroduce our guest, we're talking with Phil Huber, the chief investment officer for Huber Financial Advisors, who oversees all the investment and portfolio management functions for their firm. Um, if you had to pick your starting point of your 14 principles, do you have your favorite child of your, your favorite 14? Let's. Uh, I think if I had to pick my one favorite, it would be this, what we call shades of gray. Yeah. Uh, just the idea being that, you know, a lot of times in, in our world of investing, people like to think of things in very black and white terms, uh, but that's really not reality. And you see all kinds, there's all kinds of jargon get, that gets tossed around. It's active versus passive. It's traditional versus alternative. It's, uh, you know, cheap versus expensive. Uh, but but there's there's always a, a, a gray area in between that's that's more the true reality. And so I think as long as you're you're maintaining a, a uh, respect for that, uh, you know, that not everything is as cut and dry as it might seem, I think it can only help you be a better investor as opposed, as opposed to trying to, you know, ascribe uh, certainty to any sort of outcome or, or what have you. And so when you go through the shades of gray, and if you had to paint yourself in one shade of active versus passive, and knowing that there's this blend of, of gray, um, what color are you? Are you are you it's fully are you more leaning to the passive side, more leaning to the active side? It depends. It depends, yeah. And it, and it not only depends on like say the asset class, for example, but it just also depends on like what is your definition of active? Because some people might view kind of, you know, I know you, we're not fans of the term smart beta, but like, you know, some people view that as passive. Others w- would argue that it's active. Anytime you're making a, a bet against, you know, market cap weighted indexing, that that is, is an active decision. Or even at the allocation level, if you're devi- deviating from the global market portfolio, the, the, you know, these are all active decisions. And that exactly gets back to the point about kind of shades of gray. Like there's no right or wrong answer, but if we're using the kind of traditional definitions of, of active passive it's you know I, I think we're in on the bond side of our client portfolios we tend to use uh, predominantly active managers whereas within uh, stocks and equities uh, we use firms like you guys at wisdom tree and dimensional and iShares and we tend to you know include more factor based approaches as opposed to kind of pure market cap indexing we think there's uh, you know things like value and momentum and quality all have long histories of uh, you know, dem- you know, demonstrated results and a lot of academic backing to them, uh, and good risk-based and behavioral-based explanations as to why they've worked in the past and why you should be confident that they should continue in the future. And if you can try to capture those uh, in, a, in a tax-efficient, low-cost, highly diversified way, um, you know, I think you're, you're giving yourself good odds if you can stick with them long-term. Uh, of incremental performance above and beyond market returns. Now that's easier said than done because anytime that you're you know deviating from the market, you're opening yourself up to kind of tracking error risk and behavioral risk. And so at the end of the day, while we feel strongly about these factor tilts and premiums, it's probably they're not they're also not for everybody. Uh, if, if, if you know underperforming the market, you know in a given calendar year by five percent is going to cause you to you know shift strategies and try something different and just continue that kind of merry-go-round of uh, you know, chasing returns, then you're probably better off just indexing and going like the pure Vanguard route, if you will, if that's going to lead to better outcomes for you. 
Yep. Um, we, we know a similar way of thinking for us with alternatives. Like we use a, a decent number of different types of alternative asset classes and strategies and uh, client accounts um, because we think long term that's going to add value to the portfolio from a diversification standpoint. Uh, but th- it's, it's a more challenging area, particularly with end clients, because these are areas or strategies that are just you know they're they're less familiar to them. They don't understand them. Uh, you know the, the fees are higher on the funds, and so. And sometimes, for, you know, as we've experienced this year, you know, just because they're designed to be uncorrelated to stocks and bonds doesn't mean they always go up. Uh, and, and they're certainly, you know, can have uh, periods of underperformance. And so if, if for an investor, if they can't get over those hurdles or those humps to get comfortable with them, you know, at the end of the day, we want all of our clients to, to sleep well at night uh, with what they own in their portfolio. Uh, and so, you know, we're, we're, we just want to accommodate them as best we can and make sure that we find the right portfolio for them, even if, you know, we, we think it's, you know, somewhat sub-optimized, if you will. There's a lot of threads in there that we're going to pull into. <laughs> I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz, and I'm talking to Phil Huber, Chief Investment Officer for Huber Financial Advisors. We are talking about the Huber's sort of philosophy on investing. We started talking about focusing on factors and whether or not you could stand performance differentials versus just a straight indexing type of route. And there's a number of different threads um, that I think we should pull on. But maybe if we talk about the very, very highest level and, so you, and you think about how you allocate. So the way people traditionally think about, I have a portfolio, I'm going to invest. There's equities, bonds, and alternatives. Um Maybe at the very highest level, let's sort of and talk through a few of those different pieces. How do you think about the main source of risk and what creates a lot of anxiety? This an unsleeping at night is equities, which have mm-hmm. been were volatile after we've had a decade of you came out, you got the been a decade at Huber. You basically since you've been at Huber, you had the volatility in 08 and 09, <laughs> then it's been a straight line higher. Yeah. So you haven't experienced volatility yet as the chief investment officer. What I would disagree with is the straight line higher. I think it's easy in hindsight right. to say, oh, since March, you know, yes. 9th, 2009, that yes. it's literally just gone up and never looked back. But and, and, you know, if you're going on technical definitions of a bear market in the S&P, it was, you know, barely, right. you know, escaped it. But you, you can make all kinds of arguments that we've had. You know, there's been international bear markets several times since the end of the crisis. We've had... You many, mean people haven't just been in the FANG stocks for 10 exactly. years? Exactly. There's been, you know, many, if you look at, you know, you know the average stock as opposed to by market cap, there's been, you know, bear markets. There's, you know, I think we're about at a bear market in small caps right now. And so there, there have been a number of challenging times since then. Uh, it hasn't been a straight line up, yeah. uh, despite, you know, you look back at the 10-year chart and it might look like that on paper. But uh, I know just, you know, a lot of people in 2010 and 2011, particularly with the, you know, European debt crisis, like people were very on edge then uh, thinking, okay, this is going to be like a repeat, you know, again, because 2008 was still fresh in everyone's minds then. I think now kind of almost, you know, 10 years Hence, uh, it, it's less; it's more in the rearview mirror, and so that's it's always the case. I think where uh, you learn a lot in the short term from yeah. crises uh, or crises, uh, but then in the long term, you don't really, you know, people tend to not learn too much and revert back to old uh, mistakes and habits. I, I know one of your principles of your fourteen is is it discusses diversification, which some people during times like this emerging market say it's diversification that you should not be <laughs> in anything but the fang stocks but right. talk about how when you think about equities being 55 45 us foreign like what is 
do you think? And that would be the market cap weight of the world. Like if you're saying mm-hmm. I'm truly diversified across the world, it's like 55, 45. Most people, all the behavioral finance literature is whether in the US or you're in Europe or you're in Japan, tend to be a home country bias. They over allocate to their home market. But how do you think about that at, at Huber? Yeah, we, I mean, we're not, we don't want to make too much of an explicit bet on against the, the global market. In other words, you know, we're, we're, we're about 60-40 U.S. to 9 U.S. in terms of our kind of strategic weight between um, th- those markets. Um, it's not any sort of call on what we think is going to happen in the next 12 months. Uh, there might be a few kind of tweaks along the way if, if we think there's, you know, kind of extreme over undervaluation in different segments, but we're not trying to market time those things. At the end of the day, we think global diversification makes sense. It can be very painful at times, as we've seen in the last handful of years. It's been, you know, that whole 40% has been a drag on performance relative to the U.S. Uh, but but then you've got other long periods of times where it's been the opposite, and, and not having exposure to international stocks has been a huge drag on performance. It's more challenging when, you're, when your base home market is the U.S. where we live, uh, because it's just everyone refers and, and looks to the S&P. Um, but I think, you know, um, it would be hard, I think, behaviorally for a lot of investors. We're probably at the high end uh, of a lot of advisors in terms of our international exposure, uh, just because there is a behavioral component to it. But, you know, even if we felt we wanted to go 75% non-U.S., 20, you know, 25% U.S., that'd be a very, I think, tough hurdle with, with clients to, uh, behaviorally to, to stick with. Uh, so we think 40 is a, a pretty good number. There, there's no right answer at the end yeah. of the day, uh, but we are big believers in, in being globally diversified and that being kind of a, a permanent structural uh, you know, aspect of the portfolios. It talks about the shades of gray. What is the mm-hmm. right answer? <laughs> yeah. um, now, one of the blog posts, you did two blog posts on the Bips and Pieces site talking about international emerging markets, um, which has been one of the most battered down parts. And I, I think anybody who has a value investing frame of mind, so all the big value shops are saying EM is attractive on a pure valuation. And then you have the, well, the Fed's hiking rates, you have trade tensions with China, and you say, well, how can EM do well without some kind of deal, like a China mm-hmm. deal? Um, so that's one of the things we'll be looking for in, in early next year to, to get some of the, the short-term pain and sentiment, I think, sort of inflecting a little bit differently. But yeah. how do you view... And I know you, you mentioned Ben Carlson's as uh, one of the, the finance Twitter and bloggers that you followed. I know you yeah. linked to some of his pieces on the emerging markets. How do you view just that opportunity today? Is it an opportunity to to, to think about more meaningful? Yeah, I mean, I think, again, you'd be hard pressed to find any major shop that does capital market assumptions or kind of value based long term forecasting that isn't sort of pounding the table on emerging markets. But those are all long-term views, and we would, you know, largely agree. I think if you're gonna, you know, if you can hold your nose for the next five to ten years and and not look at your portfolio all the time, I think this is a great time to, if you don't have a position in emerging markets, to establish one, and if you have a, a, a minor or a small one, to to potentially consider uh, overweighting. Uh, but you have to also recognize that you know a good move long term might be a really painful move in the short term, and you could look stupid for you know a period of time. Uh, uh, but that that's just the nature of markets and investing, and and so we're not trying to play the game of you know what's going to happen this year or next year. It's more let's just position for the long term. Historically, you know if you if you, you know, obviously they're much more volatile markets, and so you want to probably size your positions appropriately, but. You know, if you run the numbers going back as far as the data allows, you know, there, there's been a value to uh, having a, a slug of your equities in emerging markets to complement your other exposures. And there's been, all, you know, 
particularly like following, say, the, the, the tech bubble, that whole kind of early to mid 2000s uh, time period. So I just unbelievable outperformance for emerging markets at that time. And so you can argue that it was, you know, driven by a commodity super cycle or this and that. There's always, you know, in hindsight, you're, you can always ascribe some kind of reason as to why EM outperformed or why it should continue to underperform. But, uh, you know, I think, I think it's a hard market or, you know, a set of markets to just ignore. It's a growing part of the overall, you know, global market pie. These are economies and countries that represent a very significant, you know, portion of global GDP, uh, and world population, and so I think it's, it would be a mistake for investors to just dismiss it entirely. Yeah, I mean, and I think I'm with you that it's also not only a growing slice of the GDP, but global growth that is the longer term. Now, the U.S. is like the star of the global economy today compared to, say, Europe, Japan, and the mm-hmm. sort of developed world. Um, longer when the growth profiles are higher, I mean, the consumer catch-up is something you expect, and so usually you pay a premium for growth. Now, they're at a discount to a lot of the developed world, mm-hmm. partly just because of the well, the risk, riskier markets. Risk. It's yeah, and so I think you know because uh, the U.S. market being is, is so much more established, like investors are going to pay a premium for that. So you're always going to yeah. see a, a valuation differential between the two, uh, for the or for the most part, not always necessarily, but. You know, it does seem that even on the based on that relative uh, basis, that that EM is just way, way cheaper. I mean, and by a lot of metrics, the U.S. is very much on the high side historically. Um, now, you mentioned so if equities are, we talked a little bit about the equity side and how you think about a sixty forty. Now, you you said on fixed income, and this is one of those standard views, is that in this active passive spectrum. A lot of people don't believe in indexing for fixed income. And so you sort of believe active can really add value. What do you think about the fixed income market says this is really where we should not be sort of indexed, passive based, where you should rely on more active managers there? I think there's a number of reasons. I mean, first of all, just looking at the data historically, there's just been more more of a active management outperformance. Uh, from from the you know the universe of kind of core bond managers than there have been for say large cap U.S. equities. Like it's really hard to argue with the numbers there. Part of it could be you know there's less of a fee differential between active and passive and bonds. Um, another aspect, I mean, you just you know I think Pimco did a great white paper on this. It's the presence of the large presence of kind of non-economic uh, participants within fixed income, whether it be you know pensions or or you know. Uh, 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 bank, you know, banks, things like that. Um, there's all, it's just a much more fragmented market. It's like, you know, the number of issues, it's not as liquid or transparent from a market, you know, from a pricing standpoint. And so I just think there's, and then there's, you know, non-index uh, sectors that managers can allocate to. So I think there's just a, a lot of reasons that contribute to it being an area that's maybe a little more fertile ground for active managers to add value. Uh, that said, we, we have a blend of both in our our client accounts uh, and portfolios, it's, it's predominantly active, but we, we think there are some areas where indexing makes sense, too. We're talking with Phil Huber, the Chief Investment Officer for Huber Financial Advisors. Now, we were just talking about fixed income and where active can add value. Now, I was at an ETF conference. You mentioned Eric Bautunas and Bloomberg had a ETF conference recently. And, you know, one of the big shops that has both ETFs and active funds was there. And you know, one of the heads of the business made some pretty aggressive claims saying, you know, f- we talked about factor investing. And he said, well, in fixed income, there's only a few levers you can play. There's credit and there's duration. So there should be a lot more. It's actually 
a lot easier in fixed income for factors to work. Now, that's a pretty aggressive statement from one of the leading players. Um, do you view that factors can work? Is that possible there is going to be more competition for the PIMCOs of the world? I think there could be. I mean, I think, you know, there's definitely a lot of firms. You guys are doing a lot of interesting things in in, uh, in fixed income right yeah. now. And so I think that it's a maybe... Uh, over the next 10 years, you're going to see a lot of innovation from index providers or ETF providers that are doing things uh, a little more systematically and quantitatively that, that has, you know, kind of the same, you know, the same way the equities have evolved where, yeah. you know, things like value and momentum, it's not like those like appeared overnight like 10 years ago. It's just that there's been this evolution of relying on a, a manager to deliver those factors and, and saying, okay, well, these have worked historically. Can we do them in a cheaper way, in a more rules-based way that doesn't involve the, you know, biases and emotions of the manager? And so, I, you know, I think there, there could be opportunity for fixed income to have that same kind of evolution. Um, you know, AQR is another firm that's done a lot of research on on factors and fixed income and uh, applying those systematically. So I think the jury is probably still out there, or just me- maybe needs more time to to gain traction. If you look at ETF flows, you know, they're, they're just not pulling in the types of assets that that equity factor based uh, products are. But that that could change with time. I'm, I'm not smart enough to know the the answer to that. But uh, you know, I think I'd be, I'd be very you know again at the end of the day, we're, we're looking to deliver you know, great outcomes for our clients. And so if we think, uh, and, and you're also paying a premium for active management. So if, if the time comes where we think there's a lot of, you know, quality products that can, uh, you know, deliver what we're trying to do in fixed income at a lower price point, then, then that would be attractive to us to, to explore. And we talked about finance Twitter in the first half, and you say, where is, is finance Twitter the most skeptical? Like, there's a lot of these people, um, some of them anonymous Twitter people, who love to sort of pick on the index. Shout out to Jake at Economic. Okay, and, yes, uh, unrelated is, nonsense. This is who I'm thinking about, <laughs> especially on the fixed income side, Mr. Jake, um, who lo- says there's no way these factor products are going to be able to beat the active fixed income managers. Um, and he, you know, when I sort of talked about our way of thinking about it systematically. And he's like, yeah, I'm sure Wisdom Tree will be the first firm to systematically have a quant strategy that beats. And so I said, thank you, Jake. And uh, if you're being serious. And he, I don't, I think he was being a lot more sarcastic there. Mm-hmm. But Well, and he, he's, an, you know, just, he, he's definitely someone that has been an advocate of, of actively managed fixed income. Yeah. He put together at one point some really interesting charts where essentially, you know, it's one thing to look at the entire universe of fixed income managers, but he just did like a simple screen. I think it was just, just institutional share classes of of intermediate term bond managers, this idea. And then he basically uh, weighted them by the assets. So it was kind of like a market cap approach to active bond managers, just, you know, using the cheapest share class available. And when he did that measured against like the Barclays Ag, not only did did he find consistent over basically every time period outperformance, it was actually better risk adjusted returns too. Because I think that's a lot of people kind of think, well, yeah, you know, more active fixed income managers beat their benchmark, but they're just taking a ton of risk and they're taking, they're loading up on credit risk. And that could be true to a degree, but then, you know, there's also been plenty of of environments uh, like the taper tantrum and other, you know, the big energy crisis and high yield, like other, and then this year in particular, actually, uh, with rates going up, that you've seen uh, active managers actually hold up pretty well versus, you know, the benchmark index. And so, you know, you want to be prepared for like a year like 2008, but you also have to know that that's not the only, you know, it's not, you don't, you don't want to only own fixed income for those, you know, liquidity credit crisis environments where like the world is on fire. 
you know, you also want to make sure that you're prepared and that you feel like you're going to get uh, positioned well for, for periods like we're going through right now. So certainly you haven't seen a big credit event in a little while. We mm-hmm. have seen some credit spreads blow out. Now, I will speak highly of a fundamental index that screens out bonds that have negative free cash flow. And if you rank it versus a lot of these active funds, you're going to be tough to find one that did well ahead of this index in 2018. So <laughs> we will see. This is going to be an interesting thing to evaluate over time. Um now, people will say, well, I don't know, and I was at that Bloomberg ETF conference on that fixed income mm-hmm. panel, and one of the heads of big pension said, well, that's going to be priced in the market. If they have negative free cash flow, that's going to be priced and say, yes, all right, but again, look at 2018 and look at the performance, and these indexes have done incredibly well. So it'll be interesting as you go through the next credit cycle to see, can these fundamental approaches compete with active? My we're sort of betting that they can, and uh, we'll see. And, and I hope you're right. How it shakes you know? out. Um, <laughs> it'll, it'll be fun to watch. Now, you also on your blog talked about triple Bs as one of the big factors in fixed income that is is um, on a lot of people's radars. Any sense of the should people listening in? It should be trippy, trip, uh, triple Bs <laughs> be a worrying sign for people of what's going on in that market. You know, I you know I don't necessarily think people need to like go running for the hills and say, oh, gosh, I got to get all out of triple Bs right now because it's like a ticking time bomb. But I think it was just one of those things where I just, you know, started to see a lot of coverage on this subject. And so I just kind of compiled a few articles and pieces I'd seen from, you know, other asset managers to try to at least get some of the stats out there to readers about, you know, how much that uh, particular part of the investment grade market has changed since the financial crisis. I mean, just looking at the composition of the Barclays, Ag, which um, you know, again, all, all investment grade, that 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 lowest credit quality component being the triple Bs has, has grown dramatically, and and you know, it's not to say that there's going to be this huge credit event and that there's going to be a massive, you know, downgrade into junk. There could be, there also could not be, but I think it's just a reminder to investors to not just take things at face value in their portfolio. Just you know, just because something says investment grade on the label, there could be different levels of investment grade and, and uh, you know, just having an understanding of the, the true credit quality or holdings, whether it's, an, you know, you're holding index products or active, I don't think it really matters. Just make, you know, just kind of a reminder to investors, know what you own, why you own it. Um, you know, if it's, if it's active managers, talk to them, you know, get their, their you know, opinion and, and insight into kind of how they, they're positioning for, uh, for, for that type of, uh, of environment. So we, we, we've, talked about equities and fixed income, which are the two mainstays in a lot of people's portfolios. Mm-hmm. Maybe sort of talk macro level, high level, and and certainly no one client is going to have the same objectives or goals as the next client. And mm-hmm. so I'm sure across Huber Financial Advisor client profiles, you have a lot of different models, a lot of different very specific allocations for people. But if you say your most typical client or the average client, mm-hmm. how do you think about allocating to equities, fixed income, and alts, and sort of talk about the role alternatives play for your, your clients. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so alternatives, um, we, we're believers, in, and I wouldn't say all alternatives, but there's certain strategies that we think could be really valuable additions to a diversified portfolio, with the caveat that they're not silver bullets. This is a perfect example this year where there's a number of strategies that have been you know, great long-term strategies that are having a really bad year. And it's not fun to lose money, whether it's in fixed income or equities or alternatives. Uh, but at the same time, we, you know, we're not going to let one bad year 
uh, let, you know, make us feel that, okay, we got to get rid of these because they're not, you know, it's broken or it's not working. Any, anything you own, you, if, if it's a risk premium that you think you're capturing, the word risk is in there. It's a risk. You're being paid to assume a risk, uh, but you're, you never get paid consistently. The premiums can show up in very short periods of time. Uh, and we think if something can deliver, you know, mid, mid to, you know, single digit type returns, uh, you know, lower volatility than equities and, and very low correlation to stocks and bonds, if you can stick with it, that can be additive to your, your portfolio over time and, and, you know, make the portfolio as a whole a little bit more resilient to you know, different types of market environments. And so, you know, it's a tricky thing. I'd say the average client for us has, you know, we're probably around 20% in different types of alternatives. We don't really play in like hedge funds or private equity or, you know, truly illiquid alternatives, but uh, we do use, you know, we mutual funds uh, and then we use a handful of closed end uh, interval funds. Uh, and so, but again, not all clients. Some clients have less. Uh, some actually have more. Hmm. Uh, and then for some clients that really just, you know, haven't been able to get on board with those as part of the program, um, you know, we've been willing to adapt and, and, and kind of, you know, just build a, a more traditional stock bond portfolio. But at the end of the day, it's, you know, we, we like to joke that it's 20% of the allocation and 80% of the questions that we get. The 80-20 rule. It yeah, works. It's, it's, yeah. I mean, and it's natural, too, because these are... You know things that are just you know less familiar to to end clients, and so they don't and and the fees as as you can imagine are, are typically higher, and so the you know clients are it's natural for clients to ask like you know why add these things that they're more expensive and they don't seem to be performing as well, uh, and, and part of it's just the function of the market we've been in the last handful of years, where it's, you know equities as a whole have done pretty well, um, but that won't always be the case, and so. Um, you know, I think, you know, more more to come there on the education yeah. front, but I have some ideas in mind of, of things I'd like to do because it's an area that I, I, you know, I have a ton of interest in. And, um, you know, and I think there's really kind of evidence-based type uh, approaches you can take with an alternative that you don't have to rely on a, you know, bottom-up fundamental stock picker or some like, you know, global macro trader. I think there's, you know, ways to take what work, you know, what we feel works in equities or fixed income, kind of systematic rules-based approaches uh, that are that are backed by, you know, decades of, of, of research and evidence uh, with an alternative. And, you know, like things like trend following and kind of long, short style factor, you know, premiums, uh, reinsurance is, is another example of kind of one of those very few, like truly uncorrelated asset classes that is having, a, has had a rough couple of years, but we think is almost as valuable a diversifier you can find. Let me just reintroduce our guest. We're talking with Phil Huber, Chief Investment Officer for Huber Financial Advisors, which we're talking about this segment of people's portfolios that maybe only 20%, but 80% of the questions for, for his team come on this more complex, higher cost type execution, but sort of interesting roles. So reinsurance is a category I probably have never talked about on Behind the Markets yet. So maybe for our for, for our listeners... Why reinsurance in a portfolio? What is the risk premium you're capturing? And how do you think about that as a diversifier? Yeah, I like to think about like reinsurance and even a couple other like alternatives. These are, I like to say it's a, it's a new way to invest in an old way of making money. Like re- being able to access reinsurance-based strategies. Like Warren per- Buffett. Particularly in a 40-act format. I mean, Hedgefoot's been doing reinsurance stuff for, for a long time, but again, we've never really you know, played there in our, for our clients. But, uh, you know, going back, I think I want to say five or so years ago, uh, a couple of firms launched uh, dedicated reinsurance uh, mutual funds and interval funds. So these are, you know, SEC registered 40 Act products uh, at, at lower cost points with more liquidity. And so that was an opportunity because I, I had, you know, looked into reinsurance before and researched it. And I was like, oh, that'd be a really cool thing to 
implement for client portfolios. I think that's a really you know unique diversifier. But there, there was never a vehicle I had to, to get access to it. And so that changed. Uh, and, and so we adapted that into our portfolios. But, you know, it wasn't like reinsurance was invented five years ago. It just became more accessible uh, through a more investor-friendly fund structure. But, you know, companies have been doing this for centuries. You're, you're underwriting natural catastrophe risk. It, it's a that's a risky endeavor. Uncorrelated. It would have, but it's uncorrelated. Again, yeah, exactly. The, the, the you know the the economy going into recession, uh, you know, stocks crashing. That's not going to cause a hurricane or a typhoon or a wildfire to happen. But the the flip side of that is that you know this has been a rough year with that the the wildfires and last year a couple really nasty hurricanes like and it was a reminder because there was a few really good years for reinsurance where it was like bond like volatility and you know high single digit low double digit returns uh, and, and we're we're thankful that you know the manager that we use they were very very uh, you know forthright in saying do not expect this to be every single year like this is a risky strategy this is not a free lunch there there are going to be painful years and so we were prepared I think ahead of time it's you know again it hasn't been fun to experience but i think educating clients is is one of the biggest things that we can be doing and so you know we're, we, we try to get out there as much as we can with clients and you know especially in times like this explain to them like this is why this is down this is why we continue to want to hold it it's a long-term investment much like anything else you hold in the portfolio uh and, and it's something you can like you know it intuitively makes sense as to why you should make money uh providing insurance because you know, as long as you collect over time more in premium than you pay out in claims, you make money. It's, you know, it's, it's really as simple as that. Um, talk a little bit about reinsurance. What about other of your favorite alt strategies? So if you say, well, if you had to go down the bucket list, um, where would you say you're, you find the most value in diversification as sort of your, your next favorite Oh man, it's, it's hard to play favorites sometimes. Yeah, I, mean, we, 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 I mean, we think they all have, uh, you know, a, a particular role within the portfolio. Some some alternatives are meant to be more higher return expectation, and so it's also it also kind of depends. That's the hard part with the word alternatives because ultimately it's just a catch all for anything that's not stocks and bonds, and that can be yeah. tricky too because yeah. like people like like alternatives is not an asset class. It's just this, this word we've come up with to bucket things that just don't fit neatly into one of the other segments of the Commodities portfolio. Commodities and farming. Yeah, and... there's also there's any number of things, and they're all unrelated to each other. Yeah, like managed futures has nothing to do with reinsurance, and yet we. Um, so that's always been a pet peeve of mine. I don't have a better <laughs> answer. I wish I had a better uh, term to come up with to displace yes. alternatives, but. Um, you know, I, I think I like I like the idea of something like long short uh, sort of market neutral approaches to style premium, uh, really because that's it's, it's an, an extension of what we're already doing uh, in other parts of the portfolio, like using examples like value and momentum. You know, to to do those in equities, you're you're doing so by taking on equity beta and tilting towards value or tilting towards momentum. But then, if you look at the you know the true academic factor definitions of those those factors, it's it's long short portfolios. And so, to really capture that full premium, you, you've got to not just buy cheap stocks, for example. You got to buy cheap, short, expensive, and that and then hedging out that market risk component. That could actually be a really a uh, great way to capture that premium and also have a diversifying source of returns inside the portfolio. But um, so that that would be another good example would be like kind of style premium focused funds. So we've talked a lot about your portfolio approach, how you p- piece together these equities, fixed income and alts. Um, wh- how would you say your clients are today? I mean, 2018 started to get volatile. Um, how would you say the mindset of your client base is? Summarizing. Um, 
I, I think it's it's been a frustrating year. It's, it's, it's a lot different than a, I mean, it's one thing in a year like 2008, for example, when it's just like, you know, everything's going crazy. Um, and, and, you know, it's just everyone's down. Absolutely. I think this year is frustrating because when everyone's benchmarked for quote unquote, the market is the Dow or the S and P. And again, those are struggling now too, but earlier, that wasn't the case earlier this year. And so, you know, it's just a year where every, nothing seems to be working. Bonds are down. Commodities are down. A lot of alternatives are down. Non-US markets are getting crushed. It's just like a, it's not like portfolios are down like tremendously, but it's just like, geez, like why isn't anything working? So yeah, and I think there was that that article in the Wall Street Journal a couple of weeks ago that I think it was maybe Deutsche Bank had that like list of going calendar year by calendar year, like all these different asset classes they track. And this year was like the highest percentage of negatively performing yeah. asset classes since in like the last like century. And so yeah, and it's kind of like the year that nothing worked. Um, and so you know, it can be difficult to really. Um, convey the benefits of diversification in a year like this. But, you know, diversification is one of those things that works in the long term, uh, kind of behind the scenes, but you don't really notice it too much in the short term. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, it has, you know, hasn't been a fun year, I guess, from that from that sense. But I think we have really dis- disciplined clients that we spend some time on the front end educating with our approach and our philosophy. And so hopefully that at least sets the table for them to to know that years like this can and will happen. Uh, uh, but that long term, they're going to get the, the results that they need for their financial plans. And when things are only looking great, that's when you know there's actually more risk bubbling up. And when it's all hectic, that's probably when. Well, exactly. Like like years like 2017, those were the anomalies. Yep. Like all the return, none of the risk. That doesn't happen all the time. <laughs> Phil, thanks for joining us on the program today here in our SiriusXM headquarters in New York. Thanks to our New York producer Emily Anton, uh, our sound engineer Daniel Bruno, who helped us put this all together. I'm Jeremy Schwartz, and you can listen to us on our Behind the Markets podcast. Have a great week, everybody. Thanks for listening to the Behind the Markets podcast. If you want to learn more about WisdomTree, visit wisdomtree.com. You can also follow me on Twitter at Jeremy D. Schwartz. I'd like to thank Patty Hall for producing our live program on SiriusXM channel 132 and our podcast producer, Daniel Bruno. Join us next week for another edition of the show. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu.